This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So it's a very nice morning, nice and bright. It was when I came in, but in this ever-changing uh, world, of course, it might be really gloomy when we get out from here. Um, but uh, I looked at uh, the sunshine today and I thought, well, this is an excellent day to begin study of the Diamond Sutra. As it's popularly known as, the full title, in fact, is Vajra Chedika Pragnaparamita Sutra. The Sutra, the word of the Buddha on the perfection of wisdom that cuts like a diamond, that cuts like a thunderbolt, the Vajra being a diamond or a thunderbolt. Uh, This is a hugely important and influential uh, sutra, Uh, and it's been so throughout uh, Buddhist history. Wherever you go in the Buddhist tradition... Uh, in India, in Tibet, in China, in Japan, in Korea, in Central Asia, uh, everywhere you find reference to the Diamond Sutra. Uh, it's had an influence on all schools and all developments uh, in Buddhism, all the major developments in Buddhism. Uh, it's incredibly important. Uh, it's been commented upon by uh, the different masters uh, throughout the tradition, Asanga, Vasubandhu, Han Shan, Tibetan commentaries, Chinese commentaries. Uh, in Chan Buddhism, early Chan Buddhism, it was the sutra, it was the text whereby the transmission would take place. Uh, you might remember from reading the sutra of Hui Neng that uh, when he went to his teacher, the fifth patriarch, to receive the transmission, it was through the fifth patriarch reading to him the Diamond Sutra. So extraordinarily important. And it's important in the West as well. It's been important in the West and still is. It was one of the earliest sutras translated in, in the 19th century. Uh, Max Muller did an early translation and various others have translated. In fact, there are numerous translations from the Sanskrit, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Korean, the Tibetan, and so on and so forth. I, I just tapped in Diamond Sutra on, the, uh, on Google and, poof, you know, so much uh, came up. Kind of, I, I just stopped. I just sort of thought, well, I'm not going to look at any of it because uh, it's too bewildering. It's enough to uh, go with Konza's uh, translation. And the Diamond Sutra has been hugely important for our own order and within the FWBO because it was Sangharachta, well, before he was Sangharachta, when he was Dennis Lingwood, uh, at the age of 16, this was his first Buddhist text that he encountered, the Diamond Sutra and the Sutra of Weening. They were the first two things that he read at the age of 16. And when he read the Diamond Sutra... He realised that he was a Buddhist, and in fact that he'd always been a Buddhist. Uh, He'd been a Buddhist from the very beginning, uh, whatever that might mean. Uh, The truth contained in the Diamond Sutra, he said, he knew, he knew what 
the Diamond Sutra was on about. The Diamond Sutra, his Dharma eye opened to some extent, very careful to add that to some extent. In other words, he, he saw things. He had, a, if you like, a, I guess, some sort of perfect vision moment, experience. And, of course, out of that experience of reading the Diamond Sutra, everything else has unfolded. You could say from the Diamond Sutra comes this, comes Padmaloka, comes a retreat uh, like this on the Diamond Sutra. In the early 1980s, he led a seminar on the Diamond Sutra, uh, I think on the second of the uh, Tuscany uh, ordination retreats. And eventually that seminar found its, an edited version of it, found its way into Wisdom Beyond Words, which is probably, I think, one of his most, uh, well, it's not about popular, but I know a lot of people find Wisdom Beyond Words, the different commentaries he's done on Perfection of Wisdom, literature and lectures he's done on it. People have found it really inspiring, helpful, useful. And I know people who read and reread Wisdom Beyond Words. Now, over the next two weeks, we're, we'll be studying this Vajrachedika Pragnaparamita Sutra, the Diamond Sutra. Uh, what I hope will happen is that we won't simply be studying it, but I hope that we'll be living in it, living it. For it seems to me that the Sutra... Uh, is about life. It's about all life. All life is in the Diamond Sutra. It's about our lives. It's about the lives of others. It's about the life of the world, the life of the cosmos, the life of Buddhas, the life of Bodhisattvas, the life of all beings, the life of all things. That's actually what the Sutra encompasses. It's a very short Sutra, uh, it's an, but it's an extraordinarily rich sutra. It's very dense, very compact. It just throws out classic Buddhist language, technical language. So it assumes a lot of uh, knowledge, a lot of understanding already in its use of technical language. And then it does things with that technical language. Does things to it, to them. And it's rather baffling as well. Um, it starts off reasonably straightforwardly. I say reasonably. Uh, there seems to be some sort of uh, orientation in the opening chapters dealing with the Bodhisattva's path to Buddhahood. Um, but then it seems to kind of fragment and seems to treat things in a very miscellaneous way. Uh, Edward Conter himself was really baffled by it and uh, his attempts at writing a commentary on the second part of the sutra he, he, he didn't publish originally because he was just so kind of um, you know, just sort of frustrated, I guess, with it and felt dissatisfied with it. Um, in, in, in the later editions of Buddhist wisdom books, they've included it as, a, as an appendix. And he's not even sure himself whether the, very, the, the various traditional commentators uh, are really making sense of what's going on. Um, there has been a commentary produced by, which you can get in one of the Chanans in, teaching series, that's, Ch uh, that's Han Master Han Shan's commentary on the Diamond Sutra, where he see sees the Sutra as dealing with doubts, Sabuti's doubts, many of them unspoken, and that what the Buddha is doing is cutting through these doubts to reveal the diamond mind, the Vajra mind of the Buddha. I won't be following that commentary, I won't be following any traditional commentary in my presentation, I'm going to 
just take the sutra as I find it and, uh, you know, maybe refer to things as they arise, but, you know, sort of engaging in it um, in my own way, in our own way. Uh, there is some discussion about the second part of the sutra, where it kind of kind of breaks up, repeats itself, goes back on itself. Um, you know, some scholars think, well, maybe a scribe has mixed up the pages and, you know, got things out of order. Maybe it's actually two versions of one sutra. It's one of those sort of scholarly um, enterprises that they love, you know, speculating about. You know, has it just all, you know, an accident of history that it's come to us in this way? Um, it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't actually matter uh, how the sutra has come down to us. There's a message in it either way, whether there's a kind of, uh, you know, method uh, in the sutra itself, in the compilers of the sutra, or whether there's been some terrible mistake and error and you've just actually got a sort of um, a collection of miscellaneous pages on the perfection of wisdom that was given this fancy title um, and that somehow became very in vogue. It doesn't actually matter um, because there's a, there's a message in, in however it's come down to us. From the, from the perspective of literary history, um, the scholars tell us that the Vajrachedika is, of course, part of a huge body of texts called Pragnaparamita. This is a whole genre in Sanskrit Buddhist literature. Pragnaparamita, perfection of wisdom. There are 38 different books in the Pragnaparamita series. And remember, this is all part of the, of the wider Buddhist canon. Some of these, these books are huge. They're vast. Um, they're all usually um, recorded according to the number of verses and lines that they have. Some of the sutras are very small. Um, you get the perfection of wisdom in one letter, uh, for example. But the, in terms of literary history... The, 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 the view is, is that the perfection of wisdom literature began to emerge a hundred years before the common era. Uh, so it's, you know, it's quite, it's very old literature. And the production of this literature, they reckon, kind of ended in around 600 um, uh, CE, 600 uh, of the common era. Konza, Edward Konza, has actually translated, I think, if not all of the Pragnaparamita Sutras, then certainly most of them, which is an incredible achievement in itself. He, 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 he is one made one of the most important contributions to modern Buddhism, to, to Buddhism in the West, through his translation of the, sutra, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras and his commentary on, commentaries on it and his work on it. Incredible. I mean, you know, by that alone, he is surely a Bodhisattva, Edward Konzer, an extraordinary uh, achievement to, to translate that and to translate it so well um, you do get different versions of the sutra but you know Konza still read well and uh, you know he really has tried to be faithful to the original Sanskrit incredible achievement you know and certainly Sangharachita himself in his own seminar on the sutra based himself very firmly on Konza's translation and commentary now all this uh, Literature deals um, with nothing other than Pragnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. And by the way, I should just say, um, you know, it's well worth following up the history of this literature and reading different perfection of wisdom texts. You know, some people, if you're interested in that, really go for it because it's, it's fascinating to look into it, to read Konza's articles, you know, for example. Very, very useful. Or, or Bhante's, Sangharachita's 
stuff in um, the Eternal Legacy, where basically he's he's you know kind of uh, representing Konza's findings on the perfection of wisdom literature. Well worth reading. Um, you know, if you, you you want to know about Buddhist history, you really need to know the perfection of wisdom literature and how it developed. But this literature, yes, it deals with kind of one thing only, the perfection of wisdom, Pragnya Paramita, the highest, the last of the six Paramitas, uh, the Paramita, the perfection of wisdom that makes a Bodhisattva a Bodhisattva, that makes a Buddha a Buddha. And everything that the perfection of wisdom literature deals with is looked at in terms of wisdom, in terms of wisdom. So all the categories you know, known to, to Buddhist thought, all the categories known to thought, are treated from the point of view of perfect wisdom. Um, and you certainly get a sense of that when you look into the Diamond Sutra. As a literary production, the Vajrachedika appeared around the 4th century of the Common Era. Again, very old sutra, but appearing quite late on in the Indian Buddhist scene, or, or about the middle period of the Buddhist scene, I suppose, in India. And it's one of the sh- a shorter work- works that appeared around that time. You'd had this production of these huge books on perfection of wisdom. Perfection of wisdom in 75,000 lines, I think 100,000 lines. And then you started to get these kind of summaries appearing, like the Diamond Sutra, like the Heart Sutra. Um, so you, you, you can see what's happening. People want something more succinct, something more portable. Um, that they can carry around easily, I guess. Traditionally, of course, the sutra is regarded as the word of the Buddha, that the Buddha Shakyamuni actually gave this teaching. The scholars would, of course, dispute that. But that's the tradition. Traditional Eastern Buddhists would definitely see things in that way, that the Buddha taught this sutra. Um, Western scholars have a different view. And this can be a bit confusing for a modern Western Buddhist, because we feel, you know, a devotion to the tradition. At the same time, we have our own historical perspective. It's one of those kind of in-between things or, or, or that, that we have to uh, negotiate as, as modern Buddhists. Sangharachita says somewhere that whatever, whatever it may be, whoever produced this sutra was a great spiritual genius was a great spiritual genius. genius. He was enlightened, or very near to enlightened. That's his take on the perfection of wisdom literature generally, and it's perhaps especially the Diamond Sutra. In any case, perfection of wisdom literature isn't in fact so very different from teachings found in the Pali Canon. This is very important. Uh, it might seem when you go through the Diamond Sutra that it, that, you know, that it doesn't you know, it seems very different from, say, the Dhammapada or things you find in the Majjhima Nikaya or something like that. In fact, there's a lot more common ground than is usually thought. Uh, the earliest perfection of wisdom teachings found in the Ratnaguna Sanchagata, the verses on the accumulation of precious qualities, definitely echo and restate and even have word for word some of the oldest, most archaic material in the Pali Canon as found in the Satinipata, for example. You know, particularly this, this treatment, this sort of radical treatment of not dwelling anywhere, not being attached to anything. That theme is very, very strong in the early 
scriptures, uh, not just simply from a, as it were, a, a moral, literal, material point of view, but it has definite metaphysical resonance. And in the in the perfection of wisdom teachings, this is really taken up, really run with. So you could say that the Diamond Sutra, what it's really doing is is kind of providing a corrective to the development, in particular, of um, kind of Buddhist uh, scholasticism and you know Buddhist religiosity, if you like, and going back to the root of the Dharma, something very very fresh and very simple, but having to deal with you know the the, the Buddhism that, that that had gone before. Sometimes people like to make two hard distinctions uh, between Buddhist schools when they they aren't actually there. The Vajrachedika is expressing and it's pointing to the Dharma in its own unique way. And I'm going to take it that it's the Buddha teaching the Sutra. Uh, That's how the work begins. So let me just uh, read you the opening of the Sutra. Uh, So first of all, you have, in fact, a homage. Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. And then you have what Konza calls the convocation of the assembly. Thus have I heard at one time, the Lord dwelt at Shravasti, in the Jetta Grove, in the garden of Anatapindika, together with a large gathering of monks consisting of 1,250 monks and with many bodhisattvas, great beings. Early in the morning, the Lord dressed, put on his cloak, took his bowl and entered the great city of Shravasti to collect alms. When he had eaten and returned from his round, the Lord put away his bowl and cloak, washed his feet and sat down on the seat arranged for him, crossing his legs, holding his body upright, and mindfully fixing his attention in front of him. Then many monks approached to where the Lord was, saluted his feet with their heads, thrice walked round him to the right, and sat down to one side. So it's a classic opening. And I just want to pick out a few of the things mentioned in the sutra. Um, Follow these up in your groups throughout the day, uh, throughout the retreat. Really important, I think, when you do the groups, don't leave any stone unturned. Any word, any phrase that isn't clear, check it out. Ask about it. Go into it. Be as thorough as you possibly can. So the sutra begins with a homage. Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. Namo Bhagavatyai Arya Pragna Paramitayai. That's the Sanskrit. This is uh, frequently how the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras open. Uh, There's a homage to the perfection of wisdom itself. The perfection of wisdom is described as lovely, as holy. It's described as uh, Bhagavati. Um, Bhagavati meaning richly endowed. Kons has translated it as lovely, uh, which is a rather lovely translation. Uh, But it means endowed with all qualities, and Arya means holy, noble, transcendent. So homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. Uh, Pragna Paramita, we're translating it as uh, perfection of wisdom. Uh, other translations could have it as the wisdom that has gone beyond, the wisdom that's gone to the other shore. Wisdom, in other words, that's transcendent in the sense of uh, you can't get hold of it. Uh, it's elusive beyond words, beyond thought, beyond conception. 
So you have a very traditional opening here, uh, a homage to the perfection of wisdom itself. And I think this is important, it's just a few lines, but uh, it immediately sets a particular atmosphere. Uh, The traditional approach to reading a sutra, studying a sutra, is one of reverence, devotion and faith. The perfection of wisdom is regarded as precious, as extraordinary, as sublime, as rare. It's profound. It's the deep meaning of things. It's sublime, transcendent, liberating. You know, if you you know, get a glimpse of, perfect, of perfect wisdom, you will be liberated from all bonds, from all suffering. It's also subtle, elusive, ungraspable. So there's this sense of reverence for this perfect wisdom. This is the traditional approach. You could even chant if you, you know, if you wanted to, if you were in that kind of mood in terms of approaching this retreat, you could, you could chant, Namo Bhagavatyai Arya Pragnya Paramitayai, if you wanted to, going around the stupa, getting into that mood of, of reverence. The grammar is feminine. So the perfection of wisdom is feminine. In early perfection of wisdom texts, the earliest, they describe the perfection of wisdom as the mother. Uh, the mother of the jinnas, the jinnamata, the jinnamatri, the mother of the conquerors, the mother of the Buddhas. Because, they say, all Buddha qualities arise from perfect wisdom. If you develop, glimpse, wake up to, whatever language you prefer, perfect wisdom, then all Buddha qualities will grow and thrive. They will be born in you. They will manifest. And in time, we don't know quite when it emerged, uh, the perfection of wisdom was, as it were, well, became a goddess, or people realised that perfect wisdom, they saw perfect wisdom as a deity, a goddess. Very, very important in Indian Buddhism, uh, meditation on, visualisation of the perfection of wisdom. So people's imaginations, their imaginations saw the perfection of wisdom as a goddess, a beautiful, uh, elusive, ungraspable. Uh, the form that has become popular in our own order is of a golden yellow goddess, a mature woman with you know, substantial breasts draped in silks and, and jewels with beautiful long hair in the Dharma Chakra mudra, turning the wheel of the Dharma with the blue lotuses blossoming by her shoulders with the works of the perfection of wisdom seated on those blue lotuses. So there's a whole world in just this line on homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. It brings up our whole attitude to reading the sutra. We should try, of course, to engage with the text intellectually. We need to think about what the words say and be, you know, try and be rigorous about that. Really try to, to, to engage with your reason, with your intellect, with, with your common sense even. Uh, with the text at the same time you can cultivate that mood of reverence and receptivity that sense of wonder in relation to the sutra uh, you can so, so that we should somehow kind of bring these faculties together when we approach the sutra if you like the intellectual and the emotional the intellectual and the devotional 
They need to be kind of blended in our approach uh, to the sutra, into something else, into a, a fully integrated approach to the sutra. Um, so this brings out the whole importance of, of puja. And what I want to do in the in the retreat is in the evenings. Um, not quite sure how we do it, but we're going to have readings from the sutra. I want to read through the whole sutra, but we're going to do the, the mantra of Pragnaparamita. We'll do that as well, so that we integrate our devotional activity with our study of the sutra. So when you say Namo Bhagavatai Arya Pragna Paramitai, you're kind of creating a space in your mind, in your heart, for the text to happen. So then we have the setting for the sutra. It's a classic coming together, a classic uh, opening. Thus have I heard. When you have thus have I heard at the beginning of a Buddhist text, it is regarded as word of the Buddha. The I here is Ananda. Uh, Ananda, the faithful Ananda, the, the Buddha's attendant and friend who heard or everything that the Buddha said and then repeated them at the various assemblies. So this is, what, this is how you can tell that it's uh, the word of the Buddha. And the Lord, the Sanskrit is Bhagavan again. Um, some people might not be too keen on the translation, the Lord. It might have overtones or undertones they don't like. The word is Bhagavan, which uh, again means one endowed with, with, with qualities. And he's staying at Shravasti in the Jetta Grove in Anatta Pindika's garden, Anatta Pindika's park. This indicates that this particular teaching would have taken place around the, the rainy season. Uh, the Buddha tended to stay in Shravasti uh, at that time, around the rainy season retreat time. And I've been to Shravasti many years ago, and uh, even now it's a beautiful place, um, and it would have been extraordinary in the Buddhist time, very lush um, garden, um, full of beautiful trees, um, flowers, creepers, and there's the Buddha with his monks staying in probably grass huts, maybe simple wooden huts, getting on with their retreat. So that's the setting. And he's with 1,250 monks and many bodhisattva mahasattvas. It doesn't elaborate on that. There's the Buddha's with quite a large gathering of, of people. And uh, unlike other Mahayana sutras, you haven't got an extraordinary... Uh, you know, the whole cosmos attending. It's quite a simple uh, setting. And you've got the description of the Buddha robing himself uh, in the morning and going on his begging round, taking his bowl and begging his food. He would have gone from house to house and he returns to Shravasti, uh, eats his food, puts his bowl away, uh, puts his upper robe away, washes his feet... And he sits down, cross-legged, upright, mindfully fixing his attention in front of him. Or you could just say, being aware, sitting in full awareness. It's a very simple scene. The Buddha's done what he's had to do to get his food, and he's come back and washed, and now he's just sitting in full awareness. Previously, he's been aware, of course, on his begging round, uh, aware while he's been doing things here, he's just sitting in awareness. And for a Buddha, of course, that's perfectly natural. There's no effort, no contrivance. He's just sitting in full awareness. There's nothing interrupting 
his enlightened awareness. It's a very beautiful scene, very, very simple. The Buddha in this wonderful pleasure garden, uh, sitting in awareness. Very simple, very clean, stripped back, and uh, very important. Uh, Bhante Sangharachita makes a lot of the the simple uh, opening, feeling that that's a definite message. I think he says somewhere that uh, the message is that it doesn't matter you know, what our life is like, it's here that uh, enlightenment takes place. It's here and now. It's nowhere else. It's in the ordinary. And one writer, Red Pine, who's done a translation and uh, commentary, uh, a digest of many commentaries on the Diamond Sutra, believes that the whole of the Diamond Sutra, the rest of the Diamond Sutra, is about how to get to this point of this simplicity of activity and awareness, of being able to sit to walk, to stand, to move in full awareness, in pure awareness, rich, full, radiant awareness, deep and radiant mindfulness. How to get to a point where awareness, deep awareness, is always perfuming and pervading your experience, inner and outer. Very natural. Then some monks and bhikshus come, they salute the Buddha with their heads, they walk round him three times, sit down to one side out of respect for him. The Buddha is their teacher, their master, their exemplar. They look up to him as the embodiment of that perfect awareness. So naturally they're respectful. Uh, so they're, they're receptive. They want to listen, want to learn from the Buddha. Again, there's a theme of simplicity. They're monks, they're bhikshus. They've left home, they've gone forth. They've got no worldly ties at all, no worldly interest at all. They've got very few possession. They've got their robes, their bowl, their needle, their thread, uh, and they're just wanderers, like the Buddha himself. They've got rid of all clutter, all external complication. There is just spiritual life, nothing else, just spiritual life. There's another very important detail. I've talked already about the necessity of reverence, of faith, of devotion, when it comes to studying a text like this. But there's also the need for simplicity, of getting rid of clutter. The teaching won't enter, it can't enter, if the mind's full of clutter. Or if it does go in, we'll probably misconstrue it, we'll probably do something to it, hijack it, uh, because of the clutter in our minds, in our hearts. So we need to really simplify to uh, study this text, at least for this retreat. We need to go forth, at least for this retreat. Just put things down. Forget about the world, to use that expression. Forget about your concerns, your attachments, and so on and so forth. So to do this, to get to this point, we might need to talk a bit with one another about what's been going on for us. It's no good uh, you know, trying to put things down when they're really you know, in your mind. You can't uh, uh, you know, try and pretend, oh, you know, I put everything down. You might need to talk, so you might need to do some stop-taking, maybe unburden a bit if you're troubled, or confess anything unskillful uh, if there's some, something you've done that you're not very happy about it. Uh, or just take stock, just talk about yourself, your life at the moment, so that you're free to be fully here, 
fully present with one another with the Diamond Sutra, listening to the Buddha teaching the Diamond Sutra, the perfection of wisdom that cuts like a diamond, that cuts away all doubts, all clutter, all confusion, all pain to reveal perfect awareness. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 